to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. All right, well, I just want to say good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church. Um, we are a loving community of Christ followers, and we are passionately in pursuit of Jesus, deeply connected to one another, and completely committed to sharing the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. And you, all of you, my friends, are, are welcome here. And uh, if you brought a Bible with you or you have a Bible app on your mobile phone, please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, we're going to be in chapter number 2 and chapter number 3. And today we are in part three of this series titled Parenting Fail, which is subtitled What to Do When We Miss the Mark. And last week, if you remember, we actually uh, took a step backwards to cover some grounds um, you know, that I missed in week one. In fact, we, uh, we went over Parenting uh, 101, and, uh, and so we covered that so we could actually cover a little bit more advanced stuff. And I really thought that we covered it all, okay? but I guess I missed a couple of points. And so uh, real quick, I just, just so nobody thinks that we skipped over anything foundational, um, let's just real quick do Parenting Parenting 201, and uh, we'll cover a few more basic areas of parenting so we can move on with the rest of, of our, our message. So here is Parenting 201, okay? So an important part of raising children is, is cleanliness. It's important that you have your baby and your toddler, you know, you keep them clean. And, and so washing your baby is an important skill to learn as parents. And, uh, and we searched the inter- internet and we found great instructions on how to do this and also how not to do this. So, so here you go, okay? Here's how you wash your child as opposed to how not to wash your child, okay? All right. Yeah, washcloths and bathtubs, you know, I mean, and, and seats for bathtubs, those are good. Water hoses and spray nozzles, though really effective, again, not so good for the for the little ones. Okay, and uh, and you can't just leave your child wet all the time, so you have to actually like dry them. And so here's some instructions for that as well. Uh, a soft, warm, dry towel is good. All right, but putting them in your Maytag dryer, um, though effective, is still not good. All right. And then there are those times that you have to be able to put your child in a place so they don't, they don't get in trouble or they don't hurt themselves. You know, a place where they can sleep and play and be safe. And it also gives you the freedom to do other things like housework or maybe even just, you know, go to the bathroom. So um, here's some instructions for that, okay? All right. Playpens, good. All right. Animal crates, again, really, really effective, but really not good for, for your child. All right? And then speaking of animals, uh, a huge important you know, event in the life of any family is when you introduce your baby to your pets. Because you know, your pets are members of the family too, right? And so there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. In fact, here it is. You see, controlling the environment and introducing your child to the dog is, is good. You know, here, good puppy, right? But introducing your child to Mr. Fishy this way, that's... Yeah, that's not going to work at all, okay? That's not even effective. So so there you have it. You guys have now passed Parenting 201, and we can actually, I hope, move on to some more important advanced stuff. So, but on a serious note, we are in this series titled Parenting Fail because um, the reason for, for this series is actually pretty simple. If you've been a parent for any length of time, you know what it's like to make mistakes. I know personally I have made lots and lots of mistakes with my kids because parenting is, is tough. And uh, even though it's rewarding and wonderful, it's hard and it can be stressful. And, and, and the decisions we make really affect our children. And the things that, that, that we do affect them emotionally, physically, and mentally, and even spiritually. And what we do and say ha- actually has a really huge impact on our kids. We can't always see the long-term consequences of our decisions either. And so our actions toward our children are really important. We don't always know, you know what we're going to do and what we're going to say to them, how it's going to actually affect them. In fact, 
Once when I lived in Bakersfield, it was just me and my older two kids. I was uh, a single dad trying to do the best that I could do to raise my kids, and, and I was pretty tough. I was a pretty tough dad. And uh, in fact, one time, uh, their cousin Emily came to stay the night, and they were all playing together, and they were having a good time. And, you know, and, and so they were in their room, and I was in my office doing some work. And, and then Emily, their cousin, comes in and says, uh, Uncle Sherman, uh, little Sherman and Samantha, they're, they're being mean to me. Now, there's one thing I don't put up with. Is that I can't stand to see kids being mean to each other, okay? And, and so I didn't even ask any questions. I just got right up, went right in, the, in their room, and I whipped both their rear ends. I mean, that was just how I handled business back then, okay? And, and, and I told them, you better be nice to your cousin. Never be mean to her ever again. Well, the problem with that was Emily coming to tell me that she, that she was being picked on was really an ill-conceived prank by all three of them. Okay, uh, they were just trying to get a rise out of me, you know, kind of like haha, dad jokes on you. Well, they got a rise out of me, just not the one they were looking for. Okay, all right. Now, now here's the thing, okay, because I was a really tough dad, and and so the kids were afraid of me. They didn't, you know, they were afraid to tell me certain things, and so it wasn't until like years later, years later, that they finally, you know, got the courage up to tell me. Oh, by the way, that was a joke. All right, and they finally told me that you know, after I'd actually mellowed out for you know because because Kim's had that really calming effect on my life, so um, they they actually came to me after I kind of mellowed out and they said, Dad, remember that time when you spanked us when when you know we were being mean to Emily? Well, that was just a joke, all right, and you know we were just messing around and you spanked us for no reason whatsoever, and we were just afraid to tell you that. Now, just imagine, I felt about like that big, okay. All right, I felt terrible, and, and, and I blew it, right? I mean, I really blew it as a parent. I made a huge mistake. I jumped to conclusions. You see, that's what we do as parents. Sometimes we, we make mistakes, and some of those mistakes have lasting significance in the lives of our kids. Sometimes we just get it plain wrong. And my older two kids, I'm just telling you, they remind me regularly. Okay, they're grown-ups, but they remind me regularly to this day, you know, of that incident where I was completely wrong, and they don't let me live that, live that down. You see, sometimes we fail, and sometimes we really miss the mark, and sometimes we mess up, and, and it's our kids, though, are the ones who have to live with that. And so this series is all about taking a closer look at those areas in our lives where we as parents, you know, who try really to do our very best, can commonly miss the mark. Areas where in our lives where we as parents, where we try as hard as we can, but we still bump our heads, or where we commonly stumble. Because there are just some very basic challenges that all parents face. And, and so we're going to take a look at those in and then also in this series, we're going to look at God's word and what he has to say about these areas and all these challenges. And hopefully we'll be able to learn some very practical uh, steps that we can take with us in a, from scripture and apply in our lives in order to grow as parents so we don't miss the mark quite so often. And if you have not been here in the last couple of weeks... Uh, and, and you're not a parent, you might be thinking, well, well what does it have to do with me? All right. Well, over the last couple of weeks, I have explained you know, what this has to do with you. But suffice it to say that what we're talking about today in this series actually has universal application. And what I mean by that is that the truths that we discuss here are still truths. And they don't apply just to parenting, but they can also apply to your other relationships as well. And if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, I want to encourage you to take a minute and go to our SoundCloud page, or, or you know, which is a place that we actually upload every message and you can listen to that um those messages on your smartphone or your tablet or your computer. Uh, or you can go to our church website and you can listen to them there. And for your convenience, we actually put the addresses in your bulletin. And so again, I'm going to encourage you to listen to what you've missed and share with your friends and family. Now, in the very first week, just kind of summarize, we, we opened up with talking about an important foundational issue that, that all parents face, which is the issue of balance. 
We struggle to balance our finances. We struggle to balance our priorities. We struggle to balance how we discipline our kids. And that's what we talked about. As parents, we tend to fall on one side of a line or another. We either are tough you know, and authoritarian or we are soft, permissive, and tenderhearted. Uh, we are either the drill sergeant or either the comforter. And what we discovered is we need to actually be both. We need to balance between the both of those. We need to be tenderhearted authoritarians, just like Jesus was. Okay, He's our example. And, and he was both tough, but he was also comforting. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus came to the earth and he was full of grace and truth. Jesus is the prototypical tender-hearted authoritarian, which means he was loving and forgiving and, and compassionate, but he still held people to, uh, to, uh, to a higher standard and he held them accountable and expected for them to grow and to change. Jesus would say things like, I don't condemn you, but then go and sin no more. Jesus is the example of the balance that we need to strive for as parents. And then last week, we talked about a really important area where we miss the mark as parents. We miss the mark as parents in our culture when we you know, buy into this idea that our children's spiritual growth and spiritual development is the church's responsibility and not ours as parents. For some reason, our culture has bought into this idea that it's the church's responsibility to pass on our faith to our kids, that we're supposed to, to pass on this robust, authentic Christian faith through the church and not through the parents. And we've, we've seen it has devastating consequences culturally because our kids are leaving the faith at a staggering rate. And culturally, as a result, you know, we've become increasingly secular as a country. And, and that's the reason why you know, our culture will cry about the 11 million people that Hitler was responsible for killing in World War II. But our culture doesn't even blink an eye at the 60 million children that have been exterminated in an abortion clinic since 1973. We've lost this value of human life, and, and there's lots of other consequences as a result of this. And uh, Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I want to tell you, the church certainly is a good place to bring your kids, okay? And we're going to continue to work to reach your kids. We're going to do everything in our power to reach your kids. But you, as, your, as their parents, are the greatest influence in their life, Okay? And so it's your job to help them to grow up spiritually. It is our job to support that. And so last week we went over the text in Deuteronomy where we developed a six-step plan to help you do just that. And if you weren't here, again, you need to listen to last week's message and learn the plan of how to apply that to your life. Now, this week what I want to talk about is actually on a similar vein and, and, and what we, is what we talked about last week. But this week actually is a little bit more foundational. In fact, uh, this particular area where we fall down as parents actually can produce consequences that are more devastating um, for our children in the long term. Now, to set this up, what I need to do is I need to share with you a story out of the Old Testament that is relevant to this topic. And this story covers quite a bit of text. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to summarize parts of the story, and I'm going to read parts of the text. And then, I'm gonna, then what we're going to do is we're going to come back and take it apart and see what we can learn and find out from it. And uh, two things I'd like to ask you just right up front. Many of you are really familiar with the story I'm going to share with you. And many of you are used to reading this story and hearing this story with a particular focus on the man named Samuel, okay? If you're familiar with the story, I understand, okay? But I want you to know I'm not focusing on Samuel today, so don't get kind of like thrown off by that. And don't let your anticipation of where this story actually goes, because we're not going to go all the way there. Don't, cause, don't, don't let that cause you to overlook the truth that we're going to be looking at today. All right, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that if you're not familiar with the Bible, okay, um, and if you get lost during the story, I want you to know it's my fault. It's not your fault. 
Okay, I'm going to take responsibility for that, but I want you to understand, uh, I'm going to try my best not to lose you, but if I do, if that happens, okay, um, what, what, what I want you to do is just hang on with me because I'm going to come back around and I'm going to make the point absolutely clear. Now, um, with that, what, let me just kind of just share with you with uh, how this story begins. Okay, the, the book of Samuel, actually the first one, the first book of Samuel, picks up where the book of Judges leaves off as it relates to the history of Israel. It's kind of like how Judges picks up where Joshua left off. In the book of First Samuel, there's a lot of incredible things that happen that we all kind of know about. This is the crowning, uh, it has the crowning of the king, the first king, uh, uh, Saul, and then it has the story that we all know, which is the story of David and Goliath in there, and then next, you know, um, uh, the, the anointed king, the young David, actually gets into a tiff and a fight with, with the original king Saul. But in the beginning of this book, all right, in the beginning of the story of Samuel and how he was conceived and how he was born and how he, you know, um, and, and how his parents decided to, uh, to dedicate him to the Lord. Samuel came, uh, not only became, to become a prophet, but he also became the high priest of, 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 of Israel. And it's a great story. and We can learn a lot from the story of Samuel, but this is not the part of the story that we're going to focus on, okay? Because there's a whole other little side story that happens right alongside. There's like a little subplot that's connected to the story of Samuel that's so often overlooked, but really has some important, important truths for us as parents. And so we're going to take a look at that today. And that's what we're going to focus on. And, and so our story opens up with a man named Eli. Eli was the high priest for God for the nation of Israel at uh, the time. And he was the, the high priest for many, many years. And it was his job to make sacrifices for people individually. It was his job to make sacrifices for the nation as a whole. And he was kind of like the conduit for the religious activity. And it was his job to intercede between God and man. And he was essentially Israel's religious leader. He was like one of the most important figures in all the lives of all Israelites. And he was also a man who God spoke to and spoke through from time to time. And we see examples of that throughout this first part of the story. In fact, God spoke to Eli concerning Samuel, uh, to, to Samuel's mom before Samuel was born. Because Samuel's mom was unable to have kids. And, and she would go to the temple and she would weep and she would cry and she would pray. And finally God answered her prayer and Eli tells her that she's going to have a child. Now, once this happens and once she has the child Samuel, and once he's old enough, she actually dedicates Samuel to God. And, and Samuel grew up then and uh, it, it, he grew up living and working inside the temple, kind of, kind of like a little priest apprentice. And that's the part of the story that I think all of us are really familiar with. This little, little young Samuel, you know, really cute in his little, like, you know, priest get up, uh, working inside the temple. Now, it was during this time that the, the priest Eli, he had two adult sons uh, named Hophni and Phinehas. And, and as Eli grew older and weaker, he delegated a lot of his responsibility to these two sons. But as we see in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, that wasn't a good decision because as it says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And then in verse 13 it says, the custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice... The priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or the, the kettle or cauldron or pot and that fork brought up, the priest would take uh, for himself. Now, that's a whole lot of verbiage there, but here's the idea, okay? They would bring in these offerings, okay? 
to the Lord. And then they would boil them off. And then the priest would have a servant go in there and take a fork in there. And whatever he pulled up, that was the priest's allotment for, uh, for his food. That was how he ended up you know, being taken care of. And so he would end up eating lean boiled meat as their food. But notice in, in, in verse 15, Eli's sons, what they did. It says, moreover... Before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was offering sacrifice, Give meat for the priest to roast, for uh, he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. In other words, don't boil that meat. We're going to take it from you raw. All right? don't, don't prepare it. We're going to take it from you, and we're going to roast it ourselves. And you might think, well, why would they do that? Well, we're going to see here in just a minute. Verse 16, it says, And if the man said to him, Let them first burn the fat, or let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Now, here's the thing that you have to understand. All the meat that was offered to God was to have all the fat removed before it was eaten by the priest. And it wasn't because they were like health conscious. That's not what the issue was, okay? They weren't concerning themselves with that, all right? It was because the richest part of the meat was the fat. The richest part of the meat was the fat. It had the most calories. And if you're a meat eater, you know that the fat gives meat a little bit more flavor, right? So it makes it juicy. I mean, think about eating a steak that's been boiled, you know, and all the fat's been removed out of it. It's just not the same thing. So according to Jewish law, the fat belonged to God on all of the offerings and all the sacrifices because that was the richest part of the meat. And that's why meat was boiled to remove the fat. And that's why people would say to them, well, let them burn the fat off first, and then you can have as much of it as you want. Just let God have his part because they knew it belonged to him. It was God's portion. And so, and so he got the richest part of the offering. But these two brothers, they didn't want that. That's not what they wanted. They wanted to eat meat that had the fat on it. They didn't want to eat bland, boiled meat. That wasn't good enough for them. It wasn't good enough for them that their daily needs were being met by God and the people of Israel. They wanted to indulge themselves in the fat too. And so that caused them to violate the laws of God. And it says in verse 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You see, it wasn't about the Lord for them. Okay? It was about their stomachs. They were choosing their own desires over serving God honorably. And the thing is this. You know, it wasn't that they weren't allowed to eat fat. That wasn't the issue. Okay? Because they could eat fat if they wanted to. If they wanted to like, take some money and go buy some meat and then cook it however they wanted to cook it, they could have done that. All right? They just couldn't take the fat from the offering. They couldn't take it from what was offered to the Lord. That was the issue. Because, but because of their greed and because of their appetite... You know, they took advantage of their position as ministers and they took what wasn't theirs because they only cared about themselves and their desires. They could care less about following God. And then it gets worse. In verse 22 it says, Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing in all Israel and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Now think about this. Not only are they holding the, offer, the offering of God in contempt, and not only are they violating, you know, the, the laws of the offerings, and, and not only are they taking what doesn't belong to them, these two ministers in the tabernacle are caught up in a sexual scandal with the young women who serve at the tabernacle. I mean, this goes from bad to worse, because these guys are not good guys. They could just really care less about God. They were all in it for themselves. Now, you have to understand, this is the kind of thing that happens still today. 
I mean, we, we hear about this, right? Of, of ministers and pastors and elders and even church members who get in trouble over the way church funds are misused. Or some hotshot pastor who gets caught in a sexual affair with a church member, right? I mean, I mean, we hear about these things all the time. We see them in the news. We see the disgrace that comes as a result of that. But these issues have plagued ministry and ministers for thousands of years. And any time a minister's desires grow bigger than his reverence for God, there's always going to be some trouble. But Eli's sons is the prime example of this. They use their position in ministry to satisfy their desires rather than to serve God. Now, hearing about this, you know, Eli, he rebukes his sons, and we see that in verse 23, it says, and he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Everybody knows um, what these guys are up to. Everybody knows what they're doing, so they're not even hiding it. And he says, no, my sons, it's not, it's no good report that I hear uh, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will um, mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Or in other words, if you stumble, you know, and sin, God can be gracious to you. But if you willingly spurn his grace and you trample on his mercy by what you're doing, who's going to intercede for you then? How will you, you know, how will God be gracious to you then? Bad things will happen to you, my son, if you don't stop doing what you're, what you're doing. But notice what it says here. It says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. Now, I want to just stop right here just real quick because I want you to notice something. Notice what Eli does, but also notice what Eli doesn't do. Eli does rebuke them. He does call them out, but they don't listen to him. But that is all. That is all that Eli does. All he does is rebuke them. He doesn't beat them. He doesn't fire them. He doesn't have people drag them out of the temple and, and, and run them out of town. He doesn't have them brought out before the people and have them stoned to death, which was actually what the penalty was for adultery and fornication. No, he doesn't do anything except to yell at them. He just rebukes them, which is really strange because Eli himself even said, if someone sins against man, God will uh, mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? I mean, if you do these things against God, there's no protection for you, is what he was saying. Right? You're going to be held accountable, is what he's telling his sons. You see, Eli you know, knows what his sons is doing, and he knows what they're doing is wrong, and he knows that there's going to be grave, grave consequences for everyone, especially for his sons. He knows that the judgment of God is going to fall on his boys like a sledgehammer. But he's willing to only give a rebuke. I mean... If you know something really, really bad is about to happen to your kids, don't you do everything in your power to prevent it? Why wouldn't Eli take more radical steps? Why wasn't he more forceful? You know, he's a high priest. He certainly had the political muscle to have people come and forcefully remove his sons from ministry and to punish them and to discipline them. He had the ability to exercise some tough love with his sons in order to, to try to change them and to save them from the wrath of God that was sure to come. But he doesn't. Why? Why doesn't he? All he does is just rebuke them. And that is it. And Eli knows that trouble is coming. He knows it for a fact. Because an unidentified man of God comes to Eli and says, basically, God is through with your family. He's done. 
your family is finished. You're not going to be the high priest anymore. In fact, in verse 30, the man tells Eli, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, declares the Lord, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will be not an old man in your house. God is through with you, Eli. All right? He is through with your family. And then in verse 34, it gets very explicit and says, And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. He tells Eli, God's finished with you. And as a sign that God is finished with you, on the same day, God is going to kill both of your sons. And you know what Eli does? Nothing. He does nothing. God told him, your sons are going to die. And he does nothing. He just keeps doing what he's, what he's doing. And, and the story continues. And then in chapter 3 is the part of the story where, where God calls Samuel. And if you grew up in church, you kind of know this part of the story already. You know that, that Samuel's sleeping. God calls Samuel. Samuel pops up out of bed, runs into to Eli and says, here I am. You know, you called me. And Eli's like, go back to bed. You know? And then God calls him again. He pops up, runs in there and says, here I am. You know, you called me, and Eli's like, go back to bed. You know, and then the third time, here I am. You called me, and then Eli realizes that God's talking to this kid. And so he tells him, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall speak. You shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And that's what he does. God calls him again, and Samuel says, speak, for your servant hears. And this is the part of the story that we really get focused on. Because here's this child who's serving in the temple. And God calls him, and he obediently wakes up and goes to Eli and says, here I am. And Eli figures it out, that it's God's talking to him and tells him, you know, as much. And God calls him one more time, and Samuel says, in this little, little child voice, you know, you know speak, your, your servant hears. And, and, and your, your servant is listening and this is the part of the story where we're like, oh, wow, that is so cute. Oh, my goodness. That little boy, he hears the voice of God. Speak, your servant hears. And we think to ourselves, man, we need to be more like that little boy where we're sensitive to hearing God's voice. We even pray sometimes, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening, right? And that's absolutely a great way to apply this part of the text. But the problem is we overlook what God actually says to Samuel. I mean, God spoke to him for sure, but he, he spoke to him for a reason. We forget that God woke Samuel up to tell him something specific, and what he told him wasn't good news. In fact, it was really bad news for Eli. In fact, it says, Behold, I'm about to, what, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, which the, the two ears of everyone who hears, it will tingle. And on the day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever. For Now this is the important part. For the iniquity that he knew, okay, that he knew about. For the iniquity he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. You see, he knows exactly what his sons were doing. He knew that his sons were blaspheming God, but he did not do anything. He knew that his sons were not right before God. He knew that there was a penalty for this blasphemy. He knew that the judgment would fall on their heads. He knew all of this, but he did not restrain them. He didn't do anything except talk. 
He didn't do anything to prevent it from happening. He didn't intercede at the first sign of trouble. He didn't take action to put a stop to it, even though he knew that there would be hell to pay. He knew there would be consequences that, that, that would be so severe. He didn't do anything. In fact, you know, his reply to this bad news is really quite disturbing. After hearing this terrible news in verse 18, he says, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Whoa, what? Yeah, God is God. So let God do what God's going to do. What can I do? Why does he resign his children to such a fate? Why does he not fight to prevent these consequences? Throughout the, the history of Israel, people have repented and changed, and God has changed his course of action. Why did he just resign himself to this? Why in the world would a loving father not try to restrain his children in order to try to save them? Why would he not get involved and do everything possible to make it right? Why does he just resign and say, all right... It's God. Let God be God. He's going to do what he's going to do. Well, the answer to this actually might really surprise you. And in fact, the answer to this might even convict you. Because where Eli failed as a parent is a place where a lot of us parents miss the mark. It's a very common area where many parents uh, fall short. In fact, um, we see the reason for Eli's failure as clear as day in, in chapter 2, when the man of God came to Eli and was telling him that God what he said. And in verse 29, the man speaking for God says, Why then do you scorn my God's sacrifice and my offering that I have commanded for my dwelling? Why do you scorn the offering and the sacrifice? And then he says, Why, you know, why would you do that? And then honor your sons above me. There it is, as plain as it can be. Why would you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I've commanded for my tabernacle? And why would you honor your sons above me? You see, that's, that's the problem, is Eli honored his sons above God. You see, Eli fell short, and where so many people fall short is this area, because we tend to be more concerned about making our children happy than we are concerned about them following God. That is where so many of us parents miss the mark. We miss the mark when we become more concerned about making our kids happy rather than helping them to follow God. Because many of us parents, we honor our kids and our relationship to those kids above God. Many of us parents value our kids and our relationship to our kids above our relationship to God. And we see it in the world all the time. This, my friends, is a form of idolatry. And this is the most dangerous place for us as parents to fall short. Because like with Eli and his sons, there will be consequences for this. You see, we, we, we value our relationship with our kids. It's natural. We love to see them smile. We love to see them happy. We hate for them to be sad. We hate for them to be depressed. We hate for them to cry. We love their affection. And most of us will do anything to get our kids affection sometimes. And as parents, we love our relationship so much with them. And we love that affection so much. And we love their smile so much that we just want to be friends with our kids. We love that, that time together. We want to be their buddies, right? You know, we, we you know, in fact, you know, a friend of mine actually said to me 
uh, he was a friend from high school. He actually said to me, you know, I need your advice on something. My sister has a daughter who's 15 years old, and she's in trouble. And uh, I said, what's going on? He said, well, my sister found out that her 15-year-old daughter is actually sexually active. And not only was she sexually active, she was very promiscuous and engaged in sexual activities that were just downright lewd for grown-ups. And then she found out that her daughter had been, you know, saying that her mom's nothing but a, but a B word and nothing but a this and nothing but a that and how she hates her mom. And so ask me, what do you think you would do? I'm like, well, that's easy. All right. For me, you know, if it was me, her life would be over. All right. I mean, there's nothing that she'd be able to do. There's no phone. There's no TV. There's no games. There's no friends. Her life would consist of high school homework, chores, and nothing else for a very long time. Because you have to deal with that kind of a disobedience. You have to deal with it because you cannot let your kids grow up thinking that that is okay. But you know what he said to me? He said, well, she's not going to do that. I said, well, why not? He said, well, she doesn't want to damage their friendship. What? Yeah. She doesn't want to damage her friendship with her daughter. She doesn't want to mess up that closeness she feels with her daughter. So she's not going to be that tough on her. And this right here is the problem for so many of us parents, including me. Okay? Because we want to be our kids' friends. We want that cool relationship with our kids. We want those smiles. We want to take those fun selfies with our kids, right? We want to just hang out with our kids, having a great time, and have a great relationship with them. You know, and it's good to want that. But the problem is, all too often, we want it at the expense of being their parents, though. We want that friendship so bad like Eli that it makes it hard to be a parent to our kids and to be the parent that they need us to be. And that in the end is the compromise. It compromises our ability to help them to grow up and and to do the things that they need to do. You see, it is not our job to be their friend. It's not our job to be their friend. It is our job to be their parents. This is the reality we have to face as parents. It's not our job to be their friend as much as we want that. It's our job to be their parents. And as their parents, we need to do things that they're just not going to like. And, and we're going to do things that upset our kids. And we're going we're gonna to say things that they don't want to hear. And as their parents, we're going to have to hold them accountable, lovingly as we can, but we still need to hold them accountable. And guess what? There's going to be pushback. There's going to be frustration. There's going to be hurt feelings and tears. And make no mistake about it, our kids are smart. They will use their friendship with you as a weapon against you. They will withhold their affection. They will withhold those smiles. They will make it, okay, make it clear that we're not okay. They'll make it clear we're not buds. We're not friends right now. Right? And they do it because they know it affects us. See, our kids aren't stupid. They will use that friendship and our desire for that friendship against us. And I think that's exactly what happens to Eli. He doesn't want to crack their heads. He doesn't want to be tough on them. He doesn't want to restrain them. He doesn't want to be upset and and, and upset the apple cart. And in the end, he values his relationship with his boys more than he values his relationship to God. In fact, he he values his relationship more with his kids than he actually values their salvation. Because judgment is going to come. And so many of us parents fall into the same trap. Because we must always remember it is not our job to be our children's friend. It is our job to be their parents. And as parents, 
We have some really big responsibilities. We have some, we have some huge and important responsibilities. We have responsibilities that supersede our friendship with our kids. And let me just, let me just tell you, as parents, there's not a responsibility any bigger or more important than our responsibility to make sure our children have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Our greatest responsibility is to make sure our children put their faith and their hope and their trust in God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. That's the single greatest responsibility that we have as parents to our children. Because here's the absolute bottom line truth. Your children, as much as you love them, as much as you hope for them, and as much as you don't want to admit it, your children one day will die just like you will. Your life and their life is terminal. They're not going to make it out. Okay? Let's just face the facts. One day their hearts will stop beating. One day they will stop breathing. One day they will not smile anymore. One day their brains will stop working. One day their life will be over and they will die. Just like you and just like every person before you. Now some of you realize that some of these kids may live, you know, many, many years before that happens. But some of them won't. Some will die of old age and some will die very young. Some will die of cancer. Some will die in an accident. Some may even die at the hands of someone else. Some will live long fulfilling, happy lives. Some will live tormented, frustrated lives. And some lives will be just cut off way too soon. But make no mistake, your children, despite what you think and what they think, they are not immortal. They one day will die. And when they do, they will come face to face with the creator and the sustainer of all things. They will come face to face with God They will come face to face with a perfect, righteous, and holy God. And on that day, it will not matter how many trophies they won. And on that day, it will not matter how good their grades were. It will not matter on that day how many, you know, felt accepted by their family and their friends. On that day, it will not matter, you know, if they had a strong self-esteem or not. On that day, it will not matter if they have lots of friends or if they were popular. It's not going to matter, you know, who their first kiss was or how fast they can run or if they could throw a ball well. On that day, it's not going to matter you know, what career they chose or how successful they were at work or how much money they made or how poor they lived their life. On that day, it's not going to matter you know, if your child is your friend or if he or she even likes you. On that day, it won't even matter how much you love them and how much you sacrifice for them or how close you were to them. None of that matters because on that day, only one thing is going to matter And that is where do they stand as it relates to Jesus Christ. Because everything else in that moment is completely meaningless. Do they know him? Have they accepted his free gift of salvation? And have they made Jesus Christ their Lord or not? It is a yes or no question. And it's a completely clear question. And there is absolutely no middle ground. There, is, there are no exceptions. There are no extenuating circumstances. There are no ands, ifs, or buts. Are you in Christ or are you not? That is a central issue of their entire existence. And it comes down to that moment. Are you in Christ or are you not? Regardless of how much you love them. 
regardless of how you feel about them, regardless of whether your kids were your friends or not. It all, the only thing that matters in that moment is where they stand when it comes to Jesus Christ. Now here's the impact of that, that we must absolutely, without question, understand. This is a yes or no question. And this yes or no question determines what happens to them forever. Get to understand that. Whether yes or no, this question has eternal implications. Whether yes, I'm a Christian, or no, I'm not, this question has consequences that last for eternity. You see, everything we do right here, everything we're doing right now, everything you're doing in your life, and everything you, you think, everything that you, you imagine is just a flash. Your actions, your feelings, your thoughts, your musings, and all that you do for your kids is but a breath. Because think about this. In less than 100 years, you and everyone you know, including your kids, will have died and slipped off into eternity. And if you think about it, 100 years has come and gone 20 times since Jesus was here. So your life and your kids' life is just but a breath. But eternity, eternity, that's, an unfathom- that's, that's just unfathomable. In fact, let me just share with you an analogy I once heard that I think it really helps to kind of maybe slightly kind of like bend your mind around the idea of eternity. Imagine that there was only one man, you know, on the earth. And he decides he wants to build Mount Whitney. And starting from the west coast, he would walk all the way to the east coast. And he would pick up a grain of sand. And he would turn around. And he'd walk all the way back. And then he would deposit that grain of sand on the ground. And then he would turn around and go back and he would repeat that over and over again. Now, imagine that as he takes that trip, that every step he takes, takes a million years. Every laboring step takes a million years all the way across the United States and back to pick up one grain of sand. And it comes all the way back and deposits it. And then he continually does this ever so slowly, little by little, eon by eon, and he creates Mount Whitney. Now just think about this. What a mind-blowing amount of time to even consider, okay? Right? But here's the thing. That billions and billions and billions and billions of years later, all that time going by, eternity is just beginning. You see, that 70 or 100 years of your life and your children's life is a whisper in eternity. And yet all of eternity is determined by one question. Are you or are you not in Christ Jesus? And let me be even more clear. Those who are in Christ have eternal life and they will spend eternity with their fellow believers in the presence of God and they will have no more pain and there will be no more sorrow or tears. But those who are not in Christ are already condemned and the awful wrath of a holy God will be poured out on them and they will spend eternity away from that God and there will be nothing but pain and nothing but tears and nothing but sorrow. The judgment of God will strike them like a giant hammer just like it did for Eli's sons. The consequences are unimaginably devastating. That is why this is the greatest responsibility that you have as a parent is to help your children have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ because in the end, that's all that's going to matter. Because if you do, your children will spend eternity with God and with you if you're a believer. 
But if you don't, the awful judgment of a holy God will fall upon them. And they will spend eternity apart from God and apart from you in the darkness and the despair of hell. That is the truth of the consequences. Now here's the thing. Eli was a high priest of Israel. He was close enough to God to hear God's voice. He even knew by his own words that he knew his sons were going to come under God's judgment. He knew that the consequences were going to be severe. And yet his emotions for his sons caused him to value his son's relationship over God to the point that he refused to be the parent and hold his sons accountable so that they would be spared the wrath of God. He refused to create the friction and the tension necessary with his sons and his life in order to spare them physical and eternal judgment. So let me ask you a question. What about you? Will you be like Eli? Or will you do whatever it takes to make sure your children have a relationship with Jesus Christ? It's a very simple question. And we're not mincing words about the consequences. We know what the consequences are. Your children one day will stand before God. It's not a question of if. It is a question of when. One day your son, one day your daughter, one day your grandchild, one day your niece, your nephew, they will stand before a holy God and a righteous God. And are you going to do whatever it takes to make sure that they know who Jesus is? Because the answer to that question will last for eternity. Or are you going to be like Eli, just choose to be your child's friend over being your child's parent? It's a simple question with enormous, enormous ramifications. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, I can't force my kid to have a relationship with Christ. I can't force my kid to love God. And you're right, you can't. You can't make your kid come to Christ. But you can do everything in your power to have a life centered on Christ. And you can do everything in your power to create a home that's centered on Christ so they can experience God firsthand. You can allow them to see God working in your life and in the life of your church family. No, you can't force your kids to follow Jesus, but you can create a set of standards for them to live by and hold them accountable to those standards. You might not be able to force them to love God, but you can take their spiritual growth seriously enough to do the six steps that we talked about last week and teach your kids about God. You can't force them to convert and put their faith in Jesus, but you can expose them to faith at every turn. You can talk with them about it at home. You can surround them with Christian people. You know, you can even bring them to church. Now, you might even say, well, well, I'm not going to force my kid to come to church. In fact, kids who are forced to go to church, you know, end up rebelling against, you know, against going to the church. Well, let me just tell you three things about that. First of all, the opposite of making your kid go to church is not making them go. What do you think happens to those kids? Right? Do you think that they just naturally just, you know, curi- you know, find curiosity and they just suddenly have a relationship with God? No, it doesn't happen that way. The statistics bear that out. For every kid that rebels against, you know, uh, his parents because they made him go to church, there's a hundred other kids that never even heard the gospel. Second, a lot of kids who rebel, you know, are not rebelling against going to church. Okay? They're rebelling because of the hypocrisy they see in their parents. Because so many parents are one way on Sunday and they're talking about Jesus, 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 but then they're another way at home. They talk this way, but they live differently. Kids can't stand hypocrisy. And they see it. They're not stupid. So their lives and their, when their lives and faith don't mesh, that's when they rebel. 
And the third, the reason why some kids don't want to go to church on Sunday is because they think that they're missing something. They think that if they you know, don't go to church, they can sleep in or play Xbox or, or lay around in their pajamas all day and watch TV. What we need to do as parents is help them to make better choices. Fine, you want to go to church? Great. You're not sleeping in. <laughs> You're getting up with the rest of us. And while we go worship the Lord and hang out with our church family, guess what? You can get busy doing them chores. Yep, there's dishes in there to do. You can mop that floor and you can fold that laundry. No, 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 no. No, no, it's all right. You stay here, all right? But you don't get to sleep in here and, you know, and do what you want to do. So either you're going to come with us you know, and worship or you're going to stay home and do these things. You see, we need to help our kids make better choices. Believe me, they will choose to come to church instead. I promise, okay? Now again, they might not like it. But guess what? That's okay. They don't have to. All right? They don't have to like it. It's not your job to be their friend. It's your job to be their parent. And it's your job to do everything in your power to help them meet and experience Jesus in a very real way so they can turn to him and be saved. So I'm going to ask you again, are you going to be like Eli or will you have courage and the strength of character and, and the true love for your children to do what it takes to make sure your children have a relationship with the one who can save them from the awful wrath of God, Jesus Christ? Do you have the courage to live out your faith? Do you have the courage to set aside your personal desire for your children's acceptance and, and stand up and be the parent that they need to be instead of the parent they want you to be? Are your children worth that kind of sacrifice? That's the question you have to ask yourself. If they are, then you need to follow those six steps that we talked about last week. And then you also need to present to them over and over and over again the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, I don't know how to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know? In fact, some of you might even say, well, I don't even know the gospel myself. I'm not even really sure I have a relationship with Jesus myself. So how can I share it with them? Well, let me just take a moment and share it with you. You see, it starts off really simple. The Bible tells us something we already know. We are all broken sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short. We all sin. And it's not a mystery to any one of us. We all know. Even those of us who think we're good people, we know what we think in the dark. We know what we're capable of. And what's worse is there's judgment for that. And we instinctively know that. We, we, we instinctively know. Even atheists, it's a funny thing. Some people say, well, you know, atheists don't believe in God. Well, instinctively, atheists do, and they actually believe that there's a consequence. Because you cannot make, scientists cannot make atheists just scream out loud, God, kill me right now. They won't do it. All right? Atheists refuse when study after study after study, because there's something instinctively they know that they know that there's going to be a penalty for them. Well, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. What we've earned by our deeds is death. We've earned hell because of our sin. And to make it worse than that is we can't fix it. We, ourselves, we can't make ourselves right by God in our, our own actions. We can't help enough homeless people. We can't rescue enough kittens. We can't be nice enough to the worst kinds of people to make up for our sin. And it's not because, you know, our sin, I mean, our, our, our good deeds aren't good. It's just... The Bible tells us in Isaiah 64, 6, our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. Our sin stains even our best efforts. And so we're hopeless. There's nothing we can do. But then God, 
amazingly loves us. And because he loves us, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Jesus died so we could go free. Jesus took our penalty of our sin and we, we are clothed in his righteousness. And we, when we turn to him in faith, when we put our trust in him, and we do that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raises him, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9. You need to turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin, which means you need to turn towards God and away from what you're doing. And put your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. And ask him to be your savior. And you will escape the wrath of God and be saved and have everlasting life. Do that and teach your children to do that. In fact, let's do that right now. Let's all bow our heads. If you haven't already put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, or if you're not even sure that you've done that, you know, maybe you've, you've come to church and you've been to church all your life and you've even maybe even served in a church, but you're not really sure if you actually put your hope in Jesus Christ. If you don't know that you're fully saved, then just pray with me. And now prayer, this prayer doesn't, doesn't do anything unless it's, this is the cry of your heart. If you're ready to turn to God and repent and be redeemed, then you can be saved right now. And we can do that. So just pray with me. Heavenly Father, I'm broken. I've sinned so much. I don't know what to do except to turn to you. I can't fix it. I can't make it right. There's nothing I can do. And I realize that I deserve to be punished. I deserve hell for eternity because of what I've done. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against other people. And I'm ashamed. But Lord, I want to turn away from the sin in my life. I want to be your child. I believe with all my heart the history that Jesus came to the earth, God in the flesh, that he died for my sins. And on the third day, he rose again. And so I confess today, right now, that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I believe with all my heart that you rose him from the dead. And I ask, Lord, that you send the Holy Spirit in my heart to change me, to convict me, to remold me. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to obey you and walk with you all the days of my life. I thank you for saving me. I cherish you with all my heart. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, if that's uh, the prayer of your heart today, I want to welcome you to the, the, uh, to, to the family of Christ. Um, this is the most important thing we can pass on to this next generation. Because the time will come when we will all stand and face judgment before God. Um, and if today was the day that you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus, if you just do me a favor, would you just let us know? I mean, you can come by, you know, you can come up and talk to me if you want to afterwards. Or if you're a little bit more private, you can grab one of them little information request cards right there in front of you. Put your name on there. Whatever contact information you'd like to, and just say, check the box in the back that I received Christ. And if you would like for me to talk to you a little bit more about that, I'd be happy to do that, you know, and help kind of start your discipleship so you can start following the Lord. Um, this right here is a subject we cannot be passionate enough about. We live in a culture that is distracting us and is trying to draw us away all of our attention all the time. And, and we have sports, we have academics, we have so many things that we, we have that we're involved with our kids. But make no mistake, this is the most important thing you can do for your children is to make sure that they have 
a trust relationship in Jesus Christ because in the end, that's all that's going to matter. Let me pray for you. Father, we just thank you for, for this day and I thank you for your unending grace and mercy and your patience for us. Lord, if I were you, I'd have struck me down a long time ago. Lord, I just am grateful that you have just saw fit to be patient with me and merciful to me. And I just pray, Lord God, that, that the rest of us would embrace that patience and that we would teach our children to do the same thing and that we would, we would flee from the wrath to come, Lord, and that we would put our faith and our hope and trust in you. And I pray that, Lord, in this congregation, you would raise up a people who are passionate about your word and passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would share that with everyone around us, Lord, that we would, we would fill this place up to overflowing and then that, that we'd fill up all the churches in this community up to overflowing with your people, Lord. We want to see your people saved. We want to see your people flourishing. We want to see you being glorified and honored in the biggest way possible, Lord. And we just thank you. And we thank you for those who are not here. We pray your protection on those who need you. And I pray that you meet their needs today. We thank you. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.